Amnesia by Britney Spears from her sixth studio album, Circus, and it was written by today's guest, Cassia Livingston. Now, for those who don't know, if you're trying to look for the song Amnesia on streaming in the United States, you might not be able to find it, and that's because it was only included on digital versions of the album overseas. We're going to go more into that later. For those first-time listeners, welcome. My name is James Rodriguez Horton, and I created the Original Doll podcast as a love letter to the music, the art, the legacy of the Princess of Pop, Britney Spears. I've been able to chat with songwriters, producers, choreographers, everyone and anyone who helped create art for the Princess of Pop, Britney Spears. So, what I want you to know is, if you have any questions, reach out to me on Twitter, at James Rodriguez. R-O-D-R-I-G-U-E-Z, or on Instagram, the.original.dell. For those returning guests, welcome back. Uh, And what's great is in this episode, we're going to give you some sneak peeks on some of the demo for Amnesia, uh, not heard before outside to the general public, and we're going to dissect the song itself. Cassia has been so amazing to come back continually to the podcast to talk about this. And have no fear, next week's episode, we are going to be talking about scary. So be on the lookout for that. Uh, Without further ado, I don't want to take any more of your time. I just want to let you know that this is a charitable or a philanthropic podcast. So when we have guests on, for every question the guest answers, we are going to get an item donated to charity. So just by being here, These songwriters, these producers, and so many more are helping make the life of others a little bit better during this time. So thank you so much. Any further information, you can find out www.theoriginaldoll.com. Don't you want my iconography? Don't you want to stay and then follow me? Don't you want to aim for the stars you see? Don't you want my iconography? Katia, thank you for coming back to the Original Doll podcast. Today, I want to talk about um, amnesia. And what I know about amnesia is, as a fan of, of, you know, Circus and the tracks, is this was right after Blackout, which was a huge album for Britney Spears' career, ultimately. Like, that really changed the tone and sound. And she herself talked about going more pop. Now, we talked before with Unusual You, and Unusual You was actually the second song that Britney cut of yours, and the first would be Amnesia. So tell us a little bit about, did you know what other songs were being created at the time? What sort of things were happening? You know, you're coming in as a songwriter who'd never worked with Britney Spears before. How did that impact your writing this time around? Yeah, I was trying to remember if I had been played any tracks like 
you know, this is what we're going for. And because often that is the case, but I think when it comes to Brittany, I don't think, I don't think I saw a brief or like heard any, you know, possible contenders. So it, it could be, you know, as you might've speculated that it was like just at the beginning of the process and they were just trying to figure out what was going on. Um, I know often like you'll, especially me, cause I can kind of be a hermit and just like want to write in my own space. Like a lot of that info will come either from my publisher or from producers that maybe are like have a connection to the project or are trying to get a connection to the project. And so maybe like a producer or two would have said like, this is what, you know, I want to try to work on for Brittany, but I don't even know, like, with amnesia, I don't even know if that was even like in my mind or like even a possibility to have her record a song. So I think that's part of why it just sounded like a lot of it sounds so kind of like me just playing a character or something because I just, I'd never would have imagined um, even to the point where I was targeting and saying, this is what she's looking for, even if I had had a brief. So I, I don't think so. And I think I only found out more about like, a little bit about like songs that have gone on blackout after the fact, because then I started to sort of like be connected to more people that had worked with her in the past. So that was just sort of like randomly just out of our, you know, Fernando and I trying to just collaborate that particular day without any sense that we had a hope of, of getting access to a project like Britney Spears record. Well, and Fernando Garibay was working on quicksand at around the same time with who would ultimately be Lady Gaga, because I don't believe Lady Gaga was Lady Gaga at that point, because she, like many people, and we we talked before, like Neo, there's a lot of people who come into the industry as songwriters and artists. And it just so happens that, you know, Lady Gaga was working with Fernando Garibay on what would be Quicksand. Were there other tracks that you were working on at the same time for you know, Fernando Garibay. Like I know before you mentioned with Unusual You, you had these CDs. You know, let me take it home. Let me let me make it efficient for them. How did the how did the music come to you? How did he get those to you? And were there multiple tracks that you could have written on? Yeah, I mean he I think he had like kind of a stockpile of tracks that he had made, you know, or things that maybe had been used for songwriting sessions, but they never really like came to fruition or came out on artists. And so there was that, like sometimes he would just give me like a collection of tracks on, on a CD, like as it was in the day, like this was a little bit before it would just be like an attachment to an email or, or like a drive. And, um, well, plus I, I kind of, even after it moved away from CDs, I liked having like a physical CD to like actually pop in and like one track on the CD. So it was like all the eggs were going into that basket, you know, like either you write this or not. Cause I didn't want to like second guess myself, like, Oh, should I be looking at a different track? But also like, we would go into the studio and sometimes, you know, he would just be, he would already have started building a track before I got there and would continue as I would kind of like work in my own space or so occasionally, like on rare occasion, he would have me just sit down at the keyboard and like play a progression or two. Like he would kind of describe the feeling of maybe another song that we hadn't written and say like, Oh, I really love this moment in this song. And then I would try to show him like what I thought was happening 
harmonically there. And that might be just like a kickoff point for making another track. So, yeah. And I, um, at that time, I was going to a lot of sessions with producers where they would have just worked with Lady Gaga, who that was already like her, her name. And we, you know, but as then as an artist that hadn't come out, um, who was just writing and generating these songs. And so I would get to hear, I'm trying to remember, like there were several demos of hers. Um, and I just remember being so struck by her voice right away. Like, you know, when you hear a voice that just feels like it's meant to be in the world and you just believe the person that's singing, that was like the effect that hearing her voice in those demos had on me. And so I think it might've been after we actually created Amnesia that they started to work together and like, I'd be driving away and like, she'd be driving in like for the next session with him or vice versa. Um, so yeah, but we, I don't think I heard it maybe until there was like a small listening session at one of the studios where we were just kind of showing some of the things we had done. And I think that might've have been the first time that I heard uh, quicksand and just, you know, you never know, like, Oh, is this person just going to be like a writer with the most amazing voice ever? And that's what Lady Gaga is going to do. And then of course, when she started coming out with her records, it was like, Oh, of course I knew this was going to happen. I just didn't know when. I paused right here so that I can point something out. In previous episodes, we talked about how you can hear the songwriters on these songs of other artists and how it kind of creates this lush sound. So I wanted to point out part of Quicksand in which you can hear Lady Gaga harmonizing with Britney on the lead. It's a beautiful combination together, but I wanted to point that out. Here you go. As the could hanging on the door Never let anybody put one there before My pillow's got your head printed on it Baby, of all the guys, you were my favorite Don't ask me why I just can't say goodbye No, not tonight No, I just can't say it Lady Gaga's voice with Britney Spears? It's amazing, isn't it? Back to the show. My question to you is, when you're working on something for Britney Spears and you, you know, Blackout was not something that you were familiar with at the time, you're writing a song. Is there a point when you just go, maybe this doesn't fit this artist? Is there a point where you go, uh, or do you have to go, that's a good feeling because that means it's maybe something that they haven't done before. How do you manage that? Yeah, it's kind of a fine line. And that's part of the job of like the artists A&R, like their artists and repertoire is to make those really like brave and kind of like avant-garde decisions about like, this record is so outside of what this artist has done. Let's, let's give it a try. I, I, I'm trying to think of a time when specifically, like there was, one or two times where I've specifically set to write for an artist where the artist wasn't in the room. And maybe that song was like connected with the artist. Um, but it's so often that you think you're writing for someone and then the song is pitched. I mean, it, 
so you've written the song and maybe you have a dream about where it's going to go to. And in my case, I'm always like in my mind kind of channeling that artist or maybe an amalgam of artists that I like trying to write things. So you can hear it affecting like the singing style if I'm singing the demo. Um, but then when it comes to your publisher pitching it, you know, they have their own ideas that maybe artists you wouldn't have thought of. And then there's also the sort of limitations of like, who can we get this to? And then whether or not that artist is recording, do they, do they need a mid tempo? Cause they've got a mid tempo already that they like. Um, and then also like writing with the artists, obviously, if you're not writing with the artists and they don't have like a really personal stake in that experience of having written with you, there's sort of like, those songs maybe are going to be on the front burner for the artist. So there's so many different considerations. I've had songs on hold for like two years that never ended up going to the, the target artist. And then one where you're just catching, like there's one last available slot on the record. So it's, there's so many factors and so many considerations, but it's part of what makes it such an exciting adventure. Well, and it had to have been interesting for you as well, because this album, I truly believe in the, in the truest sense of, of Britney Spears' as a recording artist is people were like, this is going to make or break her. This album is going to remind people why they love the pop thing of Britney, or maybe she just doesn't want to create any new music. Maybe there's no new sound for her to create. Um, and I even know in just doing research on it that like Womanizer and Circus, they had filmed the videos back to back because they still weren't sure until the 11th hour what was going to be the lead single they're like we can go this way or like they wouldn't have there wasn't a bad choice right there for those two so yeah. <laughs> you you working with fernando garibane we'll talk about the, the lyrical content in a second you working with him at how long did it take do you think um because i know overall because the album was released in december of 2008 how long do you think it took for you from when you got the the track to write on to write it to where you actually were in the studio with Britney while she was cutting it. How long was that time frame? Would you like a couple of weeks or a couple of months? I, it might have been a couple of months. I'm not totally, totally sure because, and we talked in the last like podcast too that we're, you know, it was like such a blur for me of like writing. Well, and the thing is that that. It, that was such a crazy time. Like Fernando had that studio, but only like 7 p.m. and after because the owner, it was like a small house, like right in the heart of Hollywood off Leland Way. And it was divided up at some point in it's like three different workspaces. And so the guy who owned the studio, I believe, was like this Dutch guy named Renee. And sometimes when I think about these details, I'm like, Am I, is this like the sequel to Usual Suspects or something like that? <laughs> there's like, there's a Kobayashi, there's like, it's, you know, it just all sounds like almost impossible. But I think the guy who owned it was using it during the day. And that's why Fernando had the arrangement to use it at night. And that was great for me because at my, you know, I had my daughter at the time who was really little and then my son was born shortly after that. And so that was the time that my daughter was asleep. So great, like I can do these sessions at night. Um, but it caused this, it was constantly running, you know, like I'd come home at three or four in the morning and sleep a couple hours, wow. you know, maybe take nursery school and that, you know, so it would, and my husband is like the unbelievable trooper that would like 
be on the night shift, you know, and he's always been like just great with kids because he comes from a family of 12. So he was like on the older side. So he was like the babysitter of the younger ones. Um, so that time, it, it's such a, such a blur in my mind. And also any update always seemed like it wasn't even like it wasn't really going to happen. And so I think I was also actively putting that possibility out of my mind because you know, you would build so much hope up, like, oh my gosh, Brittany's actually going to record this song. So it, I think it's caused me, I wish I had documented these things better, but I, I know that it wasn't like the next day she jumped in the studio to record it. It seemed like there was some finagling and, you know, often there's a contract signed between like the producer and the artist team. So that might've gone down. And you, songwriters, if they're not the producer are usually not privy to like that information and that negotiating process. So between all of that, I'm not sure. It didn't seem like it was like a couple weeks after that, but it didn't drag on for like six months. It seems like it was somewhere in the middle of all those things. And so in a situation like that, where you're writing something, is there a point, and, and you you are one of the people that has been fortunate enough to be able to be in the room while she's recording her vocals and things like that. Is there a point where after you've written it, where maybe the artist comes in and they're like, you know what, I'm not feeling this line or it's not feeling right. Or even if you are like, you know what, let's change this. Have you ever, does that ever happen where like the, the lyrics get changed from the initial to what ends up being on the, the final version when the artist is in the studio? Yeah, all the time. You know, it can happen a variety of ways. One can be that the song is just edited where there's a section taken out or restructured. Like there's a couple songs out there that have become hits, especially in EDM where somebody writes what they think is a pre-chorus and it becomes the chorus. So that's what causes sometimes like a lyrical section to be edited out, edited out. And then also sometimes the artist just wants a more personal, you know, lyric line or they want something that's like less controversial or, you know, so something they can relate to a little bit better. And so sometimes they will volunteer to change that line, knowing that that may entitle them to publishing or it may not, because that's, you know, that's still something that the, the songwriter can decide about like how publishing is divided. Um, so, but it can happen in a lot of different ways. And I've like, I've had that happen. There was a artist that I had written a song to pitch to and she ended up becoming more of like a writer than an artist. But when she was about to record the song, this was the song that ended up on that group that we talked about, Girlicious. She made some more, like she really modernized the lyric. Like there's a section that talks about names of different guys. And I liked her version, you know, like sometimes you'll keep that edited version only as it pertains to that artist. But if you're going to pitch it to a different artist, you'll go back to your own version, either to like, some people might do it to maintain more of like the publishing or the, you know, sort of like credibility or authenticity of it. Other people just like the original version, but I liked her edited version better. So I had asked specifically that it be pitched with the updated version. So sometimes an artist doesn't even end up recording the song, but they enhance it in a way by making an alteration. And so is it a safe bet that your song, when the actual artist is in the studio cutting it, that there's a good chance that it's gonna be on the project? Definitely not, <laughs> definitely not. I mean, I think different artists record like, you know, more songs than others. Like, and I, you know, there it's, 
even though an artist can like establish themselves as, you know, like a, a super powerful name that has a lot of clout, there still is like a whole machinery behind them. And that machinery wants to, you know, please the artist and make sure they're happy with the product, but also they're sinking their own like capital into promoting it. So they have to also sign off on like, these are the things that are singles. And obviously as the bat, if like the artist has a great batting average, then they might have a little bit more say so and like which things are, are released, but they, you know, obviously like if you were a business person and let's say you were investing you know, you were connected to, let's say, a shoe company, and then suddenly there's a new shoe by a brand that's always done well, but this shoe looks crazy to you. <laughs> so you're not sure if you're going to want to like invest, you know, like each thing is, is an investment uh, decision as well as an artistic one. So then in a situation like that, you have these artists that record these vocals, kind of record the songs, and at what point do you think the album really, specific to Circus, did it start shaping up? Because I think the the great thing about Britney Spears and her discography is you look anywhere and there's a ton of people saying this was a demo online. It's like there's there's a difference between an artist cutting the song and you just pitching it to somebody who you thought was somebody who's somebody who's somebody. Like I can easily <laughs> say like, oh, I pitched a song for Circus and it didn't make it. It's like, well, yeah, <laughs> anyone can. <laughs> But is there a certain point where in the process, the pre-production, if you will, that the the label just says, you know what, we have 11 of these 12 tracks figured out. We're only looking now for the ballad or for the opener or, you know, is there a point when the label says, now we just need to pinpoint this is the kind of song we're looking for to fill in the, the open slot? Yeah, we'll sometimes be told that. I mean, obviously like out of, you know, out of respect for like the artist privacy and also, you know, probably out of like not wanting to make promises that they can't be sure they can keep, they won't necessarily say like, okay, your song is definitely on here. Cause at any moment, some rogue element can happen, you know, a life thing happens for the artist or a song comes in that's just undeniably catchy that like might shift around the order that's on the record. Um, but yeah, I, it really runs the gamut about the briefs that you get. Sometimes you get a two page, you know, worthy, two page worth thing, you know, like an email that's a very, very specific brief about what they're looking for. Other times there really isn't that information or maybe there is, but because you're not connected to that, you know, that one contact, you don't have access to that. But I, like, I always kind of, take those briefs with a grain of salt because I know that their idea is right and what they're looking for, but it, that again can change too. Like they can say, we're looking for, you know, like 1950s influenced heavy metal. And then like, you know, EDM opera will be like the first single. <laughs> and you're just like, this is so, and artists, can, you know, new artists especially can change direction a lot as they're kind of looking for like, what's the sound that represents me. So you never, it's really, even if you're like a really, really big writer or producer, you know, you hear about all the time, they've got the first single and then there's this dramatic shift, you know, but also by the time things are recorded, you know, there's, depending on the sort of like weight that you have in the industry, if you're like an up and coming producer, you might not even sign a contract with an artist saying, 
this is how much I'm going to get paid for my production work. As a writer, I don't sign a contract like that. All of my payment will happen only when the record comes out, unless, you know, like I'm a writer, co-producer, working with another producer. So, um, you know, sometimes money has changed hands where a producer has been paid several thousand dollars to have recorded with an artist because they have a certain amount of weight that's kind of equal to the artist or sometimes greater than the artist. So there's also like budget considerations, but ultimately if the best song ever comes onto their radar at the last second that they can't resist, everything changes. The promotional plans, the, you know, the order of the songs on the record, everything. So it's, that's a long way of saying I'm not really sure, <laughs> sure, like who gets that specific brief. But I feel, and then there's sometimes like a couple, a couple different cooks in the kitchen too that have like different ideas about what the record should sound like or what to run with. And I, I'm always like in awe of those people that are like both of the artist and of the artist team. Because for me as a writer, I can be inspired and write something in 10 minutes do a quick demo and then I'm out of the studio. And I, I love spending time like writing and working on vocals, but sometimes that process for me is very fast. And I don't ever have to say, does this song really represent my brand? Because people I think understand, people in the industry that songwriters are kind of chameleons. We're fans of different genres. We always want a challenge. Like, can I write this style? Can I write that style? An artist has to decide do these 10 or 11 songs are like, I'm putting everything on these songs to like continue my career. The team, you know, by the time we hear a song on the radio, it feels like a no brainer to us. Like, well, of course that's a smash, but the artist team, they're the ones that have to say some people that are hearing this song, this demo love it and others hate it, which is usually mm -hmm. a good sign that it's going to be a hit. It's a polarizing type, you know, <laughs> love, hate reaction from people. And they're the ones that have to risk their jobs and everything saying, I think this is a record we should go with before anybody else has really agreed that it might be a hit. So they're, they're very brave to do that. And it kind of makes them, always want to have their ears out to a smash that's come through as a demo that they don't want their artists to miss out on. So, you know, with that said about like, some people might like it, some people don't. What, how do you feel when you're putting your lyrics out there? Because here's the thing we just heard on, on Blackout, this, this dark Euro heavy, there was a point of not putting ballads on blackout there was a point of there was a distinct sound of that album you come in with amnesia which is this retro sounding fun just it's this quirky song that fits britney spears super well and now having talked to you numerous times it fits it really fits you well um which makes sense that it that the song found the home so when you get a track like when fernando garibay creates this track and you get it sent do you know right away because you hit the chorus so close to the beginning you know and there's always talk about is there a math behind it do you wait 50 seconds do you wait a minute 10 did you already hear that there was going to be the chorus like you know pretty close to right away or did you go let's figure this out like is the track as is pretty much similar to what 
he created when you started writing it? You know, I'm trying to remember because, I mean, we were in the studio almost every night. You know, maybe we'd have a night off here or there if we had like other sessions, but we were so like, it was like our own little writing cave situation. And so because we just made so many songs at the time, I don't always remember the exact process, but I feel like, like there's some songs where I walked in with an idea and he built a track around it. Um, other times he was building a track and I was like listening, you know, quietly in my corner to see if I came up with an idea. And I don't really remember on this one if, you know, I think we had made some other songs that were kind of like a similar feel, almost like a doo-wop, you know, for that modern era. Um, and yeah, really, I, well, he often, like, Fernando is like such a great consumer of music and ideas out there in the world. So he would, also, uh, you know, often be listening to things and then be inspired. And I wouldn't even know, like, what the original, like, source of inspiration for creating it was. But I, we, we would write and then, you know, we work on recording something. And then if we wrapped it up, I would take a track home often and like write it on the way back home, like in the middle of the night. And then we get together the next day or two days after and like start recording that. So most of the songs went down that way. And that one, I feel like he was kind of like messing around with some sounds in the studio. And then I was like, oh, what, you know, it just started. I would craft an idea in my head and then he had this like the entrance room into this, his sort of like wing of that small studio um, was also the vocal booth. So I would just jump in there and kind of just sing down some ideas. We didn't have the amnesia as a title for it at the time. And we didn't, you know, it was kind of like the era of just post like Fergalicious. So there was a lot of that sort of like, you know, um, rhyming and like, you know, my dad calls it Rapstimme, which is like, Stimme is like German word for singing. And now you know why I don't get invited to like a lot of parties because I would say really boring things like that. But that's what my, you know, my dad's, kind of, he's a, a brilliant musician and his assessment of like, where it's part rapping, part, you know, singing. And so I think that was sort of like the channeling that I was doing. It wasn't even thinking at that point, like, you know, oh, Brittany would definitely want to do a record like this. And it was just the chaos of the time of my life of kind of going from like home life out into like working and back and forth. It was chaos. And you hear that chaos like in the record because it's like a train that keeps rolling. And I often like you write things as a writer in a certain structure and then the producer will restructure it. Sometimes you both agree. Sometimes you might be a little at odds about how it should go, but I usually defer to the producer. But in that case, I think because it had a sort of like rap singing style, it just felt more natural to us to have the chorus kind of like leading off plus that intro that's sort of like in a different key. So um, yeah, that's sort of like how that, that emerged. Well, and so how do you make it work? Because I feel like in this song, there's a definite distinct tone that Britney has in her voice. Was that something that was based on your reference vocals? Like, because it wasn't this, what people can refer to as this baby voice thing, that it was, it was more full, more lush. So how did that come to be? 
looking at there's kind of more of a cry in her tone and I like I'm not really sure because I remember like watching her record it and then slowly being able to hear more of her voice like you know the way that I've seen her learn and record songs in the studio is listening to the song when she's not even in the booth making notes like somewhere floating around our things I have like a paper that she was putting notes on in pencil that like somebody at the session thought like, Oh, you should take this home with you. Um, yeah. That I probably like with all of my other clutter, it's like so my unorganized memorabilia <laughs> sessions. Um, <laughs> and then she'll go into the booth and she'll sing along with like the lead vocals being up at like max volume as she's learning. And then eventually the leads will be, you know, like, the volume on them will be reduced so that she's hearing more of herself and she's more kind of like walking that tightrope of like, you know, doing the lead vocal then. So her, her tone, like as I, cause I just listened to it again to kind of like remind myself of all those, like all the minutia, you know, of it that sometimes I can forget. We, as writers, you get demo-itis sometimes where you like, have so many memories about how the demo is that sometimes you even forget like what changes the artist has made to like pocket and enunciation and everything. But my tone on there, I think we discussed in the last podcast is it's, it's not auto tuned, like, you know, very aggressively. So it's, you hear like out of tune-ness in the, in areas where my voice is a little bit more prominent. Because um, Garibay is really, Fernando Garibay is really not a fan of, or wasn't a fan of auto tune during this time, right? Yeah, I mean, I think he is like a little bit more of a purist, but also like there are like flaws and things in my voice that make it hard to come up with like, you know, every every person that's going to try to sing something in this era, there's like a collection of settings that go on, like there's compression and there's just like all all different knobs and buttons that I have no idea like how they work, that they can do. And it makes just makes the voice more palatable, whether whether you're, you know, someone who's not an artist or whether you are. And so, you know, that kind of impacts like the sound of how the vocal is going to be. But my general tone, I think, based on my physiology is kind of more neutral, but more dark. And it's kind of more muffled, probably like a wonderful souvenir of all the listening of michael mcdonald that i've done in my life is like one of my favorite vocalists of <laughs> people of all this time is the part where, this is the part where i'll play a snippet for the listeners in the back of michael <laughs> mcdonald <laughs> like a keep forgetting or something Well, and I think something that's interesting is when you, and I think this is something that most fans don't know, because I only found out recently from you, is there's there's something about, there's always a conversation of Britney Spears' voice. You know, is she a talented singer? Is she this? Is she that? It's like, people can love it, people can hate it. It's not that. But I think you had an experience that I think truly shines a light on her ability as a vocalist when if I'm trying to mimic, you know, a voice that's near me, I can go, okay, I can go with this. But if that voice is off pitch or a little, you know, too high or low, 
I have to work harder to make sure I don't fall into that same lane. So do you want to tell the the the, the listeners a little bit about this? Because I think this is something that really shows the talents that she has as a vocalist. And I think people need to hear it. Yeah. Well, and I was really kind of a nervous wreck in general in that session. If like, if you want just a tiny bit of the backstory before we get to her vocal, just to show you where my headspace was, because that formed even more of a contrast to her like calm ability to tackle the song. So we, prior to even deciding that our song should be called Amnesia, I had that title forever. And oddly, even though I was going in with Fernando, like almost every day, I had never thought to create a song called Amnesia with him. And I instead heard like a tiny snippet of a different like producer's track who hadn't produced. He was an engineer working at Chalice Studios at the time and kindly recorded the Girlicious vocal song uh, for me, even though that wasn't his song, just because he was there and the producer had like, much like the Bloodshine Avant situation had like taken a flight away and and couldn't stay there and record the song and so I often writers will have this title in our mind like we want to write we're addicted to the feeling of telling some deeply buried truth or like angst that we're feeling we're addicted to putting that on songs because it kind of breaks the isolation that we're in and makes other people say oh I you know if, I, if they like that song it means like they understand what I've gone through and so I kept wanting to write this title and as writers sometimes we'll do that without really writing the best song that we can or the right song that our emotions are telling us to because we so want to write that title and so I had that title and I tried it out writing it using like I think as a pre-chorus like a snippet of that accord progression of that other producer slash engineers track and it we did a demo. My publisher heard it. They pitched it to Brandy. She was possibly going to record it. And then time went by and that didn't happen. And then the freestyling sort of, you know, coming up with silly ideas on amnesia with Fernando happened. And the word amnesia just popped out of my mouth. That was probably the amnesia that I had been instinctively wanting to write, but just not the one I thought that I was supposed to write. And after a while, he said, we, we have to call this song amnesia. And I was like, well, I already have you know I I don't know if I could do that to the other person and my publisher kept promising like oh we're going to have a talk with them and it'll all be fine and they everyone kind of assured me that it would all be fine but it just ethically you know I was a little conflicted so but finally I had my understanding was everything that would worked out had worked out and we were okay to roll with the new amnesia which much more reflected like the the title itself and when I got to the studio to record it even though it was a totally different studio than where I had met him he was the engineer that had been hired to do that session to capture her vocal sometimes a producer will act as an engineer sometimes they'll hire someone else so and we got there and we were like we hit the ground running so I didn't even have a chance to talk with them and explain like you know make sure and confirm that he was okay which it we talked later and he was totally fine with it and appreciated even having the chance to like have the song pitched to Brandy initially. And so I think we had been told that Brittany was going to arrive at about 9 p.m. It was at a studio called Glenwood, which is sort of like on the west 
perimeter of, of Glendale. And again, looks like a residential area where no one would imagine that like recording is happening <laughs> at the studio. And so we had been told she was going to come at nine and Fernando had asked me to kind of like get into the booth and just kind of like warm up the mic is how he called it. But I think he just knew that I was probably internally panicking and he wanted me to be comfortable but there's a key change between the intro and the actual song itself. So if you've been singing the song and you have to start over again and try to like sing the intro, it's really hard to find it because there's no, the vocal just starts right away. So I'm in the process of doing that, trying to calm myself down. And I see through the glass in the booth that Brittany has arrived right on time. And it's looking like I'm having a hard time singing this song, which is not the impression that you want to give to the artist, you know, as you want them to feel comfortable recording the song. So I already was like in a very nervous and I'm kind of socially awkward anyway. And so I come out of the booth and I kind of go over to say hello. And she's already really focused on, you know, she was able to interact, but she was focused on her job that she was going to do. And so she and her kind of team asked for us to play the song a few times in the room. And she was making notes, you know, the notes that I mentioned and, you know, thinking it over. And then she got into the booth, like singing along to my like max level leads. So I almost like couldn't hear her initially. And, you know, I was kind of strained here over all of like the hot mess of my vocals that are like really like sibilant and like kind of, sizzly and almost like painful to your ear <laughs> maybe not even almost um, and then Fernando after a couple passes of that started to turn down my lead vocal for her to sing to and I I can't even tell you I was shocked she was singing along to my out of tune lead vocal but she was in tune and was nailing it as though like she had written the song herself. It's I've seen this phenomenon with her the two times that I've been recording and with a handful of other artists where they can go from not even being that familiar with a song that they like, they know that they, their team has selected it and they've selected it to suddenly being in this zone where it's almost like they could perform the song. It's almost like it's memorized and they're able to sing it better than way better in, in my, in the case of my demo. And so it definitely, like I never had any questions before that about like her singing talent because I had seen those videos of her like doing the talent shows as a kid. And I had started to learn by that point how crucial tone is that that's that thing that just like makes you know an artist right away. But I hadn't, I had worked with other artists and seen it be a little bit more difficult, like learning the song. There would be continual passes of a section where certain like just really small details of rhythm and pocket and intensity would be off so that it really made that whole section like not work. And yet here was Brittany like, coming into the studio right on time out of the chaos of whatever her life must have been like as a, as a mother, as like an artist, as an icon, as a person that the paparazzi, like that's the only time in my life where I've been like besieged by paparazzi coming out of is when you're any studio where they know records for Britney are being created and see, you know, people will come up to my car as I'm leaving and say like, Hey, 
like crazy about that Britney record, right? And I'm like, what? I don't even know this person. Like, what are they doing? And then I realize, like, oh, you're paparazzi. Okay, you're not carrying your camera, but that's what's going on. Um, so I, I can't even imagine like what things she was juggling. And yet, after a couple listens and a couple passes, had just nailed this song with her like you know amazing undeniable tone it's yeah anyone who's had that experience would definitely not question whether or not the tone you're hearing is is britney even if it's backed up by background vocalists or enhanced by like the demo singers you know some of their original vocals still being in the track and i think because that's the part where it's even if people aren't recording artists, I think if any of us have been in choir or something and we have four part harmony or something like we have, we know how hard it is to make sure that you're hitting your part, you know, as a bass and not the baritone or the tenor part because your ear wants to go to that. And if something is off, your ear wants to go to that. So for her, and I think this is something that people don't, don't get is that like, or some do, but that, she's not writing these songs to where she's, she's not writing a lot of these songs where she's so familiar with the song, the cadence, all this stuff. So when she goes there, she's hearing it for the first time, then creating this within that, that day, that, that night, if you will. Um, And that's something I think people don't understand is that like you or I, let's say if I'm playing the piano at home or the guitar or something, I have hours where I can just play around with it, see how it feels, then go in and do it she's showing up the chaos of everything that was happening with the media during the time still had to come in and do her job because people forget that her her job she you know she's a recording artist and she wanted to do this she wanted to make a you know a lighter album more poppy album whatever it is and so she has all the stresses of that being a, a new mom of two just going to work nine o'clock at night doing this and yet she has the talent and the skill level to not go to what the ear is hearing but to fight against it and i think that that's i wanted the the listener to hear that because that's not something that's easy none of us can do that when we're singing in the car somebody's singing off key next to us it's like you automatically turn and go what are you doing like you're you're it's it's not doing that but that speaks to her vocal talent so let's talk a little bit about about the the song with the lyrics so you mentioned the key change thing so for the listeners here that maybe don't understand music that way can you kind of explain the key change maybe even give us an example you know of of what that is and how this song really isn't it's not an easy song for anybody to just hop on and sing we may think if pop songs that's not the case especially if you're doing it without any like Here's a little heads up. Here's a cue. Here's a little key and tie in. Okay. So for the listeners, here we go. Yeah. I think that like, as I listened again, like today to kind of remind myself of those things, I'm like, Oh, 
maybe that's why we created that. There's like a little huh kind of vocal that happens. Like maybe that's why we created that just so that there's a way to know like where, cause otherwise you're kind of coming out of thin air, you know, it's not typical. Like in the past, you know, obviously if you go all the way back to like the classical era, that was part of like the brilliance of those pieces is how many keys can you work your way through, um, you know, and get back around again, you know, and things have been, there's a different craft to writing pop songs and, but things have been harmonically simplified for this era where usually you're not going to see a super dramatic key change, especially in 2021 in songs, you know, like it's where EDM, you know, other genres that are maybe both about listening and about like being in a public space, which of course I know the pandemic has kind of tamped down for all of us, but you know, you might be listening and dancing. And so those, obviously there's an art to doing a key change where you can get into it and you don't feel like you're like, like it's something too crazy or too avant-garde, but it's, it just doesn't happen. Like maybe, you know, like eighties, nineties that, you know, with ballads, that might've been the time where like at the very last, you know, Celine Dion chorus, like, oh, or Whitney, you know, like, oh, now we're up a half step or a whole step. But it just doesn't happen as much now, and especially not in that kind of song. But I think what had happened is that Fernando had created, like, harmonically the intro. And he, like, he's somebody who's, you know, obviously very talented, but I don't know that he's necessarily coming from a theoretical background. And actually, most of the people I meet in the industry that are successful songwriters, you know, if they play an instrument, they might be self-taught. They don't necessarily know like the music theory rules and it enables them to break the rules in such a cool way. Sometimes learning theory kind of puts you in a box. And so um, I think that's, Fernando was really attached to the key that the intro was in and then the key. And I've actually never sat down at the piano and like tried to work it out. Like, but there, the, the note I think that the intro ends on in the vocal and that starts the actual chorus that comes after that, I think is the same. And that's sort of like the pivot point note. But when you're in the intro, it's a, it's a different key center than when you're in the song. And so that was part of the challenge. And now I'm trying to remember, like I think Brittany might've started recording like the song proper and gone back to do the intro after we had kind of warmed up a little bit into singing the song just because maybe Fernando had seen like what had happened with me trying to be in the booth and I'm already like super nervous and the engineer is like okay let, let's try the intro again after I had been singing the song <laughs> and I was like wait you have to play me a drop of like the something in there so I know like where to start um and yeah, so it's not typically something that's done, but I think because also it's referencing sort of like a retro style too, that sort of like gave us the permission to have that kind of like unique um, harmonic choice going on. And I think that's something where it's, there's so many words and lyrics in this whole song. And I know oh. we, we got a question where somebody was asking about like conversate. They were like, there are a couple questions, you know, <laughs> And they were like, why is it conversate, not converse? Like 
can you tell the listeners? I mean, I I know, but can you tell the listeners why conversate works versus converse? Yeah. I mean, like I notice when I'm writing because I'm like trying to channel this or that artist whose voice I love, I'm kind of like it's like playing a role or like stepping into like a character that's different from yourself and I know now that like as I've been doing it you know like on a publishing deal and professionally I always hesitate to call whatever you know anything I'm doing necessarily professional because it just feels kind of like a dice roll every time but um you know you're kind of channeling like maybe an artist that they're telling you you should be writing for that day. But really, it's also a chance to put on this costume. You know, it's a vicarious experience where it's like, oh, I wouldn't ever tell anybody that I'm good at talking to guys. Like I'm good at flirting with guys. Like that's the last thing I would ever like think or do. But it was this character that we were putting on, you know, that I was putting on again, like coming out of the Fergalicious era and imagining somebody who's soulful and who maybe has a really fun way of expressing themselves. So conversate just happened to work because of the syllables, even though it isn't a real word, but it's worked its way into the vernacular. And for some reason, when I was working on it, that felt like the way that's the way that that character that I was kind of playing in the moment might, um, might talk. And it just, I don't know, like when you're, when you're writing, sometimes you're not even conscious of what you're doing. Ideas just come to you and you're like, why did I just reference that Greek myth? Like I didn't even know like <laughs> that I knew about that. So things will just pop out of you that you're not planning to say. And then sometimes after it happens, you're thinking like, is this embarrassing? Like we're saying a word that isn't real. Obviously in the context of the rest of amnesia, there's a lot of other slang <laughs> you know, going on there. But yeah, and when, and then if you try to replace it or correct it, you can never find anything that kind of like has the right balance of that original word that you used. That's why we ended up ultimately having to call it amnesia because we just decided this has to be the title of this song. And it was the greater of the two amnesias that I had kind of like had at the time. Now, the next one is something that I messaged you about lyric-wise. Did the singer or Britney's boyfriend buy her a bra or a rock? about like submitting lyrics or being organized in any kind of a way because you know you're just you're so addicted to writing songs you're writing one song and then the next song and you know only a small percentage of those songs if you're me is getting recorded by artists but still you're chasing that feeling of like expressing yourself and venting out your angst and your stories and so sometimes you know and especially me being like maybe less you know interested in the business of it and more interested in the writing of things just wouldn't always take the time to make those things clear and it's definitely rock which even already was kind of like 
a little bit played out as a slang for a diamond or a gemstone, but it just flows by so quickly that we were like, okay, it's kind of silly, but let's just like keep it. You know, it's it, almost like the artist that was going to record it would, would be kind of tongue in cheek too. Like they wouldn't even necessarily be playing themselves. They're, they're playing a character when they sing the song, but that was another one where we're like, is there anything else that like, I, I wonder if at one point Fernando might have even said that like it kind of sounds like bra, but he kind of liked the controversial nature of that it might be a little bit hard to distinguish. But what amazes me is that people will sometimes show me like, oh, somebody's written this lyric down of this song and they've written it down like answering somebody else online, like this is what the lyric is, but they don't they don't actually know. They're also just guessing. So that that lets me know that I really whatever of my leads you're hearing underneath and whatever the artist is like hearing of mine that they're learning, it just tells you how terrible I am at enunciating because then the artist repeats that that's in the demo and it forever sounds like bra when it actually is, is rock. Well, and I love it. We <laughs> talked about in the last episode with unusual you, the, the, you know, Brittany does sing different vocals than were actually that had been written. And we had a, a question from Paloma in Nicaragua. Oh. Thanks to all our international listeners. Um, yeah. <laughs> Paloma in Nicaragua said, who does backup vocals? I really like the way Britney sounds and I like these backup vocalists. They sound really cool. Yeah, and that can really like run the gamut. I think we were talking in the last podcast that sometimes it is like, I've noticed a lot of the, a lot of the artists that do their own backgrounds, even if they do have a really signature voice, are often the ones that are the writer artists that like Brittany obviously writes and she's a co-writer on another song of mine, Scary. But like some like artists will start as writers, you know, or they're doing both at the same time. And maybe a song that they've written for another artist that's not right for them will come out. And I've noticed those are the ones that tend to do a lot of their own backgrounds because they're doing that as part of like writing for other artists and creating those demos, you know, um, and artists that are getting pitched those songs understand like, oh, I'm listening to like Brian Tedder's vocal here, but I know that he is an artist that writes for other people. So it's not like this is a song he just didn't want. He's, you know, like recorded this demo as a, as a song to pitch on purpose. And so, you know, that category tends to do a lot of their own backgrounds. There are some artists who almost never do their own backgrounds. And I also, you know, people tend to say like, well, why didn't this artist do their own backgrounds? But sometimes timing is a factor too. Like they just are running from one thing to the next. And other, other times it's the producers wanting a tone that is like a foil to the artist's tone for a lot of different reasons. We talked about how my voice is kind of neutral. And so it like can thicken up an artist, you know, like giving them this bed to kind of sing on top of without making your ear drawn too much away from the lead vocal. So sometimes it can be different people all together sometimes backgrounds are like the thing that starts a song because it's like a found sound, like a snippet of audio that's available to use. And so it's not even a new person that's re-recorded it, or sometimes it's a found sound and they'll hire a background singer to try to recreate that sound effect. So there really are like infinite considerations for that. 
And it's not always the artist's choice. And sometimes they want, like, if a female, if it's a female artist, they want it to sound like a male artist. It's almost like doing a duet, kind of like on the background. So so many different things. And as you know, mine sometimes are used as backgrounds, always because they were just recorded as a way of presenting the demo and they're just on there already. Um, and then you have people like Maya Marie that are fantastic writers and vocalists that might be called in to do some backgrounds on a song that's not, that she hasn't written just because her voice is incredible. She's just an incredible like lead and background singer. And they just might want like her particular tone in that moment. So it's never a slight to the artists if they don't do their own backgrounds. The whole, a whole song is like, a landscape of different exciting things for the listener. And in this climate, the name of the game is keep the listener on their toes at all times. Something that maybe, maybe you can't even tell on a conscious level is coming in to the mix, but you're supposed to perceive it and kind of be like affected by it and moved by it. And so that's sometimes too why it's like, okay, this tone of voice you're hearing now, this different tone of voice, sometimes it's a mechanically created voice. So that's a very long answer <laughs> to your question. I love it. I love it. No, these are great. And and what's awesome is the amount of questions that I've received through our Instagram, which for those who aren't following yet, the.original.doll or the website, <laughs> just go old school, www.theoriginaldoll.com. Um, and there's a contact form where people can contact and ask questions or on Twitter at James Rodriguez. Now, what's been great is I've had so many compliments about your voice and, and you're telling the story of how you created this art. And uh, a lot of people list Unusual You, they list Amnesia, and they list, which we'll talk about next week, Scary, um, that them being some of their favorite um, Britney songs. And here on the podcast, I like letting the listeners get a little taste of the different layers, the vocal layers, the separation, so you can hear and appreciate all those different parts that create a really great song. hear it the, and I always forget about this but where you can hear it the most prominently like the original um vocal of like demo vocal of mine is like there's some answers in there that are I she never re-recorded so it's like number uh, uh you know like that little riff that's going through it's because my voice is not very clear it's being purposefully masked just to kind of you know you could hear the sort of like it's on a kind of like uncomfortable edge sometimes where it's like not not loud, but it is piercing. It's like a weird combo. I, so, that's so I love it. But that's why it's kind of like obscured because of its own like lack of clarity and then the intentional trying to soften it up a little bit so it's more palatable. So you can hear it as almost like a background sound effect without necessarily being able to identify what it's saying. But that was just from our original demo and it kind of punctuates it. And, you know, it's part of the sort of throwback feel of it, like almost like a background singer. If you were like a member of a, like a fifties doo-wop group, you'd have like a, you know, like somebody like doing that line.
right there. And so that I think that's why that's kept in there and to fill up whatever small amount of empty space is in it without like being constant vocals. It's like, let's put So the song is done, it's put away, it's all set to go. Was there a discussion in which it's like, yep, this is in contention for circus? Yeah, I originally had heard that it was like one that was in consideration. Like, obviously, it didn't make it through to being like an official, you know, it's, it became a bonus track. You know, like you obviously are rooting for your own song, but you know that the other people that have a song like, you know, that's on hold are often like your friends and people that you hang out with and you write with. So something that is a disappointment for you is mitigated by the fact that it's a celebratory moment for somebody else that you can really be excited for that moment for them, you know, and, you know, not only am I excited for their success, but I would never think to myself, I should have a bigger opportunity than them. You know what I mean? Like, why wasn't it me? You know, I'm always just kind of like in awe of any songs that break through all the competition and really like to have, you mentioned like an artist singing your lyrics, you know, melodies obviously are very specific, but there's something so specific to me in lyrics, especially that like, if I've been the only melody lyric writer, which actually is pretty much the case in all of the three Britney placements, like for some reason, I find that more surreal than an artist is singing like your specific lyric, because you, you are writing it for them or you're writing it for some voice that you love to sing and not you, but they're really telling your story so they can relate to your story and they're wanting to tell your story. It's, it's a wonderful kind of surreal, trippy phenomenon that happens to you when you're then listening to their voice attached to your story. So then when did you find out that, you know, that amnesia was going to be on like a deluxe digital edition in like the UK where it was, you know, a territory only. And then secondly, how does your publisher handle that where it was created here, but it's only in, it's in a separate territory. You know what I mean? Like, how does that work? Yeah. I mean, every publisher and every like PRO that's BMI and ASCAP has like affiliate affiliates around the globe. So the same process that tracks like, how like a U.S. edition, you know, is, you know, sales of that album or, you know, plays of that, you know, spins as they used to be called. Those are the same entities that kind of track like overseas income and things. Although, as I understand it, like some of the collection rates and things like that can be different, but it doesn't necessarily you know, because albums will chart in different territories anyway. So as far as I know, they're, it's just tracking the same type of sales, but like from a different area. I wish that that meant that I should take a trip and maybe see like the Downton Abbey castle, like just to make sure that the song pack was going <laughs> well in the UK. <laughs> but it didn't turn out that that's what happens. <laughs> oh my goodness. And then how is it, because I feel like, Circus and, and Blackout was, for me, of the Britney albums, Blackout was the beginning of the really buying digital more than the physical. So how did that change? Because Amnesia is available digitally on in the UK, but not on a physical album. How different was that for you? Because I feel like most of the other songs, whether it was Pussycat Dolls, things like that, where 
they were physical. Like you had a physical product. You had a physical release, an album cut. Was this one of your first ones where it was like Amnesia is just a digital release, not physical? I mean, that was definitely in like the era where the digital, you know, the digital revolution, you know, starting, I guess, in like 99 or 2000, like really impacted like album sales. Um, But I like I'm so bad at understanding exactly what that all cracks out to be, you know, and and again, it always feels like I'm chasing the next song and it always feels like. I still can't believe like this song came out on this album that I'm not, you know, like I've met certain writers who are like, how dare they take my song off this record? You know, you, when you're a writer like me, you want to work with somebody like that because one of you has got to like (laughs) be a little bit more of a go-getter and more aggressive, but that's usually the writer that will know like down to a couple decimal points, like exactly how much you're going to get. And then I will get a check in the mail and go, wait, this check comes now? Like, it's like much to my husband's chagrin. It was like, please be organized. Um, so yeah, so I don't know exactly. And also because I didn't have another like big album to like compare it to, like how it would like the having a song on the album proper or like not digital would affect it. I do know that like anytime you have a song that is on an artist like Britney, even if it's not a single, even if she's only recorded it and has hasn't put it out it's kind of part of like the um I don't know I guess you could say like your brand or something like that and so if there's you know opportunities that you get on account of that it's way more than like like sometimes you can have a hit song on an artist that kind of comes and goes you know people can forget sometimes that you had like even a song that's like a hit song or, you know, a charting song on a new artist, because maybe they're, you know, they kind of come and go. But if you've had a song on a really iconic artist, such as Britney, so many times when you go into a session, that's the thing that caused somebody to want to work with you. It's the feeling of being access, able to access a project like that. And it's the sort of like iconic nature of the artist that opens more doors. So I couldn't really calculate like the opportunities and income that have come from it, even though my motivation was just solely like having fun and telling stories and writing songs so much more comes out of it than just like the actual like sales of that album. So when when we as the consumer buy a physical copy of Circus, do you as a songwriter benefit from that? Yeah, so you, so the general sort of like breakdown as I, you know, as it has been for like decades is that each, each song that's like a proper song, you know, like on the track listing as opposed to like a bonus. And I don't actually know if there's like an equation for bonus tracks or even how that works, but um, each song provides to the writers nine cents, like each copy of the record for each song you have. So you divide that amongst the writers. So let's say there's just three writers, then maybe that's like, you know, each person has like three cents and then a portion 
portion of that goes to their publisher if they're in a publishing deal. So each record, you know, depending on how many writers you could, as a songwriter, you could have one penny. You could have less than a penny if there's a bunch of writers or you could have two cents or you could have like eight cents if you've written the record all by yourself, but that you can quickly see how then the digital revolution impacted songwriters um, particularly because when physical copies aren't being sold and, you know, the people are able to just like download for free or, or just listen for free, then you go from like, you know, maybe making a hundred thousand dollars on a platinum record to a record selling 30,000 copies. And then you can have a very fancy dinner at Long John Silver, and then you better write some more songs. <laughs> so um, it's, you know, it's, it's a huge impact, although I've never, you know, I definitely think it's unfortunate that the whole digital situation took off without any regulation because, you know, I, I never feel like I'm the songwriter, like you must pay me because I feel so glad to just be like doing this job at all. But I know that like, other organizations like you know YouTube are they're making they're generating income in which our songs are used and we're not being compensated so that's why organizations like Sona um, have formed as a way of trying to get some regulation and some compensation which I hear is going really really well it's just you know, anytime there's something that is a commodity that is for sale, the price is really not necessarily set, as you know, by the actual cost. Like, how could you even figure out what it costs me to write a song? You know, it's really on spec for us. And we're just hoping, you know, that to make some income. Um, but the price, you know, obviously of CDs went so high and there was a natural backlash. Like the same thing happened when Pro Tools, there was a hack into Pro Tools where suddenly it was available for, for free because the price was high. Really, I don't think hackers should be able to determine the price of an object that other people have spent money creating, you know, and, and, uh, and copywriting. But it's, this was sort of like, you know, a, a runaway train where there was this, all, the, all these platforms that suddenly came up and no way to determine how much people should get paid. But I understand it's a result of a backlash. So you, in a way, it's not right. But then you also can't blame people if something is priced out of their range and they still want to have it. So there has to be some regulation. And unfortunately, a lot of very talented people decided to do a different job as a result of this. But um, yeah, it's it's made it where it's much more of a singles market now for writers trying to, you know, a few really good singles can kind of make your entire career, but you probably cannot survive if you don't have any singles in your career. It's very hard to generate enough income to like to pay all of your bills. So then what advice do you have as we come to the close of this episode of the Original Dell podcast? What what advice do you have? So let's say we have the listeners who are like, well, how do we support Cassia? Like, how do we like, you know, what's the best way for us to support those songwriters? Because not just you, because the great thing is you've been fortunate enough to have so many songs that have been released, you know, throughout the decades for other people. How do we support the songwriters? Because at the end of the day, they're living paycheck to paycheck. And what my listeners have learned from the first episode of this, this podcast is 
a songwriter doesn't get paid when they punch out of that studio at that time. That there could be a long time for your first, you know, for the first money to start coming in. So what advice do you have? How can we as the consumers support the songwriters that we, we love and appreciate their art and what they've done? Well, you know, I see all of the like copies of the records that you've purchased, James, that, you know, you've collected an amazing amount of things. And like any of any of those things where our songs are going to appear on it in some kind of a way where it's like a physical copy of something, definitely there is like a compensation for us. You know, obviously, if it's a collector's item and someone sells it for a million dollars because it's rare, we don't get, you know, a portion of a million dollars, but we will get the initial amount, like for, you know, for the initial sale of something. And obviously if it's something that somebody else has just burned and created themselves, we're not getting compensated by that. But yeah, I mean, I want to tell people to buy physical copies of things, but like we've moved into an era where people might not have a CD shelf anymore, unless it's for, you know, like antiques or something like that. Well, you're, yeah, you're, you're, I think you're keeping all of us in business, actually. As I pointed out my shelves, that's not even all of them. I have them on the side. It's my office. (laughs) It's incredible. It's incredible. And I like having the physical copies too. It's, it's kind of sentimental. And you remember that feeling of first, like holding that CD or even a cassette tape, you know, in your hand or vinyl. Um, But I think more importantly, like if you really are like passionate about the songwriters finding about the out about the organizations like Sona and supporting those organizations, because, you know, you can try to listen to like a song of the songwriters a million times on YouTube and hoping that that will push it into the category that's then generating revenue, but it's still largely unregulated. It's like, it seems like a, you know, sort of North pole toy factory of like, I don't know what end the money comes out, like, you know, for the songwriters. Um, So maybe like if you want to donate, I mean, there's so many things to donate to. So I would definitely say like victims of, you know, crimes and and victims of other, you know, of inequalities are important things to donate to. But if your passion is trying to keep songwriters in business, find out about the organizations that are trying to create legislation where you can actually say if you're going to have my song on YouTube or something like this is how much I'll get compensated. So Sona is one that I, it's just S-O-N-A that I happen to know several of the members that have like founded and they're doing tireless work just to try to basically save, you know, if you can imagine, like if you love a certain song, like that a songwriter has written, but they maybe are like someone who's a little under the radar it's possible that if they if there isn't a way for them to generate income for themselves they might not write any more songs you know that get out there into the world so if that's your passion donating to those causes is a really great idea but i would never ever tell anybody not to try to be a songwriter just because the climate has changed the climate is always going to change and when you know, physical sales started to go down, like suddenly there were ringtones, which that didn't even exist anymore, which again is, you're more likely to have ringtone income, like at the time, if 
you had a single that people would know and it would be a ringtone that would, you know, people would feel like they would want their company to, to offer, you know, the sale of, but you know, there's always, there are always like income streams and ways to survive. And if you, you know that you're supposed to be a songwriter, if you just literally can't think of anything else that would be your chosen profession. And so I would never tell anybody to not dream. You know, if you have stories to tell, we will always adjust. There always will be a way for people to provide for themselves. And again, thanks to Sona that, you know, the day might be coming a little sooner where we can get back to more like regular compensation. So if songwriting is your dream, don't go into it wondering about like, how am I going to provide for myself? You know, keep writing your songs, maybe have a job on the side and, but keep trying to get your songs out there into the world. So thank you so much, Cassia Livingston. We have you coming up next week as well. So thank you so much uh, for being a part of the episode of the original doll podcast, Britney Spears with James Rodriguez. <laughs> thank you so much. Before I let you go, I want to let you all know I'm going to be sharing a link with Cassia's songs that are available on Spotify, Apple Music, um, so you can take a listen. She's had a wide range of hits and songs written by a very diverse group of recording artists, so be on the lookout for that. And if you have any questions that you'd like me to ask for the song Scary, which we'll be going over next week, send me a message on Twitter, at James Rodriguez, R-O-D-R-I-G-U-E-Z, or Instagram, the.original.dell. And I wanted to leave you with a little something uh, from Cassia herself. I had a listener, Mikhail from uh, Russia, who had asked if we could hear uh, a cappella, uh, Cassia's voice, whether it was the demo, performance, anything like that. So we wanted to leave you with a little taste of Cassia's vocals. I forgot my telephone number. If he wanna see me, he don't even know where. I forgot my dress. Damsel in distress. I forgot my boyfriend was the one that helped on me this ride. Don't you want my iconography? Don't you wanna stand and follow me?